morning, uh, as we dive into this passage, I'm really excited about this today. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, God, we thank you for this day, this beautiful, wonderful day. God, every good and wonderful gift comes from you. And so right now we acknowledge that. We are so thankful for everything we have. We're thankful for the friends and the family that we have. We're thankful for this wonderful church body that we can gather with to worship. We're thankful that we can read and proclaim your word that you have given to us. God, I pray that as we study this scripture today, that you will continue to open our eyes, open our ears to hear from you. Help soften our hearts. And if there be any unbelievers in here today, God, I pray that you would move and work in them, that they come to belief, saving faith in your son, Jesus. We ask and we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Hebrews. Uh, you kind of see that by the graphics and things. It's, it's a dead giveaway every week, so there's no surprise there. But what I want to recall is last week, we were talking about the great high priest. And as we were looking at that, we saw how Jesus is actually better than any other high priest there's ever been. In fact, the writer of Hebrews compares him all the way to the first high priest. If you're going to go back to the best of the best, let's say, you're going to go back to when God first instituted this role of the high priest. And so the author of Hebrews compares Jesus to Aaron, the first high priest. Remember, Moses' brother Aaron was the first high priest. And all the other high priests that came after were of Aaron's line. And then the writer of Hebrews also showed us a few attributes of what a high priest does, what they, what they fulfill, a few qualifications as well. And we saw that Every high priest is a man chosen and appointed by God that he's sympathetic for the sins of the people because he bears those with them and then he makes offerings to atone for their sins. And we saw how Jesus fulfilled all of this, that Jesus Christ was indeed a man, that he was called and appointed by God. Remember, he fulfilled those uh, psalmic prophecies about you are my son, I have begotten you. Today, I have begotten you. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We're going to continue uh, mentioning this and building on this today, which is why I'm kind of recapping this. You'll hear the name Melchizedek for the next couple of weeks as we continue to get there in the scripture. We saw how Jesus was the greatest high priest and how because of what he did, he actually went into the true holy of holies, the most holy place. As we recall, the things in the Old Testament are just a shadow that lead us to the fulfillment and the fullness that is Christ Jesus. We remember that graphic I showed everybody last week. When we're looking at the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, we're seeing a shadow that brings us all the way to Jesus. And Jesus is the actual fulfillment and the fullness of all of God's promises. And then at his death, he institutes the new covenant. So the old covenant has now passed away. We are living under the new covenant. Part of what passed away in the old covenant is Aaron's priestly line. There's no more need for Aaron's high priests because we no longer offer all those sacrifices that they did in the Old Testament. Otherwise, we'd be up here slaughtering bulls and goats and turtle doves and doing wave offerings and drink offerings and grain offerings and doing all these things. We don't have to do that anymore because Jesus Christ made one sacrifice for all sin 
for all time. He fulfilled that. And this week, we're going to see how Jesus going and fulfilling that in the trueness, not just in the shadow in the Old Testament, how he went into the holy of holies. And now because of that, we who are in Christ can appear before God's very throne. What was once a throne of judgment against sin is now a throne of grace for the believer. The writer reminds us that we can appear boldly before the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace in the time of our need. So we're going to continue to look at this idea. What we're going to talk about today builds on this idea of what Jesus has done for us as this great high priest. And as we're reading in the book of Hebrews, what we're going to see in this next portion in chapter 6, there comes another warning section. It's kind of similar to what the author says in chapter 3. In chapter 3, if you remember... Uh, The writer tells us that Jesus was faithful over God's house as a son. Moses was faithful as a servant. But he also warned them, do not harden your hearts. When you hear God's word, do not harden your hearts. This was written originally to Jews, to Hebrews. And they received God's words, God's promises, God's prophets. And many of them received these words of God and hardened themselves against it. And in chapter 3, God gave us, and they explained this metaphor for the Jews in the wilderness that hardened themselves against God's words through Moses. He said, they shall not enter my rest. A similar warning is given here at the beginning of chapter 6 for those Jews who have tasted of the heavenly promise. They've, they've tasted of that. It's the same word that, that the author uses when he said that Jesus tasted death. Now, we know Jesus did not stay dead. Hebrews 2 says he tasted death for us, but he did not stay dead. So this warning is clearly given to those who have tasted of God's good word, but not those who are fully in it. And then also the section uh, after that says, yet about you, I'm sure of better things, things pertaining to salvation. And that's what we're going to pick up today. We're going to talk about this full assurance of hope. The author wants the readers to be encouraged and to continue in the good works and the love that they have shown to the believers. If this microphone keeps messing up, I'll go grab one here in a second. I apologize for that. To have the full assurance of hope. So let me ask you this. How can we be assured of anything in this world? How can we be assured of anything? We're we're told things all the time, and we have no idea if we can be assured of of anything. So let's think about this in in human terms. When you do business with somebody, you want to be assured of what they say they're going to do. If you have someone come to work on something at your house or to work on a vehicle or doing work for your career, you want to be assured that what they tell you is actually they're going to do it correct? You have friends who make promises to you or say, I'm going to be there. I'll show up to this or I'm going to do that for you. And we want to be assured of what they have said to us. But we know in all these things that assurance is only as good. The words of assurance are only as good as the person who said them. If the person you're doing business with is a crook or has crooked business practices, The only thing you can be assured of is they're probably going to do something crooked to you. 
If your friend has, has a, a tendency to, to lie or be deceptive or to w- worm their way out of things, you can probably be assured that they will do that to you as well. We're used to dealing with that with people. This is why we enter into things like contracts, right? If, if a man's word was as good as it is and you could just say, yes, I agree to that, we're done, we would never have to enter into contracts for anything. That's the only reason we enter into a contract is so if they try to get out of it, we can enforce the law. But what about with God? How can we be assured of anything that God has said to us? How can we be assured of these promises that we find in Scripture? How can we be assured that we will receive these things? Well, to explain or to demonstrate or to prove that, the author of Hebrews actually turns back all the way to the book of Genesis and reminds us of a situation with Abraham. A couple of, several weeks ago now, actually several months, we did a series over the life of Abraham after God had called him. Remember, Abraham was 75 years old when God made a promise to him. And it took him a couple of decades to fulfill that promise. But at the age of 100, Abraham is given this son named Isaac. He's given this son named Isaac. And then after a few years, God makes a strange request by our consideration And he says, you know, go and offer your son Isaac to me as a sacrifice. Abraham had waited his entire life. He he had waited 20 some odd years for the son to be born. He's 100 years old when Isaac is born. And then some years after that, God tells him to offer his only son as a sacrifice. But we see that Abraham believed God and even believed that he could raise Isaac from the dead and keep his promises if God had to, that God could do anything. So Abraham was not going to withhold anything from God. Abraham, offering his son, about to offer, when he stopped. And after he stopped, God makes a promise to him. He said, because you would not withhold your only son whom you love from me, surely I will bless you. And we're going to read about that here today when we pick up in the scripture in chapter 6. But another thing I also want to remind us is the promise of God given to Abraham came years and decades and generations before the law was ever given to Moses. In the same way that the priestly order, the high priestly order of Melchizedek came years before the law was ever given and Aaron was ever made a priest under the law, Melchizedek was a king priest who Abraham also had dealings with. But let's go ahead and and turn in our scripture to Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 13 through 20 today. Remember, what the writer wants the reader to have is the full assurance of faith. That's why he's writing this next portion. So read it through that lens this morning with me. Verse 13 says, When for God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear... He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath 
is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. When God made this promise to Abraham and he swore that oath, there was no one higher for God to swear by. Oftentimes you'll hear people say, I swear to God. But when God swore an oath to Abraham, he had no one higher to swear by, so he swore by himself, making this promise so that by two things, number one, God cannot lie, and then number two, for our sake, he took an oath to give us a guarantee. As we look at this, now I want to think about this. This promise that was given to Abraham here that's mentioned, surely I will bless you and multiply you. That promise actually comes right after Abraham is willing to sacrifice Isaac. So he's not talking about the promise to give him a son. That promise has already happened. I will bless you and I will multiply you. Remember years before God told Abraham, all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through you. We talked about it for a minute, but I'm going to bring up some other historical facts about Abraham real quick. We know that Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old. Isaac was born when he was 100, and Abraham died at the age of 175, according to Genesis 25-7. So he lived until 175 years old. Isaac was born at 100. Now Isaac had sons born to him when he was 60 years old. So 100 for Abraham plus 60 when Isaac had his sons would make Abraham 160 years old when Jacob and Esau were born. Abraham wouldn't die for another 15 years. Abraham began to see how God was fulfilling that promise and keeping those generations going. We see that Abraham received that after patiently waiting, again, 25 years for Isaac to be born, but even another 60 after Isaac is born for the line to continue and continue. But going back, again, God cannot lie because he is the truth. Psalm 119, 160 tells us this. It says that the sum of your word, God, is truth. And Proverbs 35 says every word of God proves true. You realize that every word that God speaks is true because he is true. Something is true simply because God does it. God cannot lie. It's impossible for him to lie. Whatever comes out of him is true because he is true. And I also want us to think about this. Satan is the father of lies, as Jesus told the Pharisees. Satan is the father of lies. But the Lord God is the father of truth. Remember, Jesus, right before his death, told the disciples, John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
no man comes to the Father but by me. So everything God says is true. God doesn't have to prove that he's true to us. But yet he does. The author tells us to be even more convincing to the heirs of the promise. This is another example where God yet again goes far above and beyond what he needs to do. He doesn't have to swear an oath to prove what he's going to do for us. But yet he does because he knows how we are. And so for our sake, he took an oath. And again, in an oath, a person always swears by something greater. It binds them to enforce their oath. This is what happens when we sign contracts. So if someone breaks a contract, we could take them to court and have a judge or someone enforce the agreement on them. God bound himself to keep his word to Abraham so that no matter what, God would keep his promise. You think about that. Yes, God told Abraham, I'm going to do this, but then God also put himself under his own oath to make sure that no matter what happened, he was going to fulfill his promise to Abraham. So we have set our hope on these two things, the truth, the fact that God cannot lie, and the oath he took to fulfill this promise. And this is our hope. The writer calls it a, in verse 19, says it's the anchor for our souls. It's an anchor set firm and secure. And the anchor is not just a thing. It's not just a promise. It's not just an oath. The anchor, the hope we have, is a person named Jesus Christ. But I love this illustration of an anchor. This is something that pretty much all of us understand the moment we hear the word anchor. And yes, I'm talking about exactly what comes to mind with an anchor. You've got a boat with a rope with some big heavy piece of metal in the boat. So whenever a a sailor or a fisherman or whoever is out on the water, they can't just put the boat in park like we can with our cars. That's one of the nice things about driving, right? We can pull up into a spot, say, I'm going to say right here, put my car in park, and I'm not moving anywhere. And if we really want to stay stuck, we can put our emergency brake on. But in a boat, it's not like that. Because a boat is on the water. You have, you have wind, you have waves, you have currents. There's all these things that will push and move the boat. So when a fisherman or a sailor or someone comes to a spot they want to stay around, when they come to a good spot in the water, they take out that big heavy piece of metal attached to that rope that's tied to the boat, and they drop it into the water. And it sinks down, and when it hits the ground, the anchor is supposed to be heavy enough to keep the boat from moving too far. Anyone who's ever fished before understands this concept. Your boat will move around in the water a little bit, but it's always attached to that anchor in the ground. And and, and this example of Christ being that anchor for us, this, this hope, here's what I love about that. He's a firm and secure anchor. I didn't didn't even look up to see that they put the uh, illustration up here. (laughs) I did this just in case anybody was confused about what an anchor is. But also whenever we're looking at this, this this idea of an anchor. What's interesting about this too is that what he says in verse 19, when he talks about that anchor, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What we talked about last week, remember? The high priest, once a year, the day of atonement, 
they would not only go into the holy place inside the tabernacle or temple, they would go into the holy of holies, that place they could go into once a year after they'd made all the proper sacrifices to cover their own sin and then to make atonement for the sins of the people. They could go behind that curtain into the presence of God once a year. But in verse 19, our hope has entered into that inner place behind the curtain, which is where Jesus actually went, where the priests under the law would go in as a representation. Jesus actually went to the holy of holies, the presence of God. He went behind that curtain as that perfect and acceptable sacrifice. But not only that, if we remember when Jesus died, what happened to the veil, the curtain in the temple at his death? It was torn in half from the top. And now because of Jesus, we can go before the throne of God. The throne of grace, as it's called in chapter 4, verse 16, where Jesus is seated at the right hand of majesty on high. So let me ask you this. If Jesus is our anchor and he has gone behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, where God has proclaimed him to be a high priest for how long? Forever. Where is our anchor, Jesus Christ, right now? Our anchor is in the Holy of Holies, seated at the right hand of God. And if you're tied to that anchor, what are you tied to? That same place. Jesus is what's holding you to that access to God in the presence of God, which means that's where you are anchored. Because that's where he is, that's where you are. And unlike a rope that would happen in a boat, you know, in the natural world, if the storm gets big enough, if the waves get strong enough, if the wind comes hard enough, eventually the anchor could be lifted up and moved, or eventually the rope would snap. Because those things are only so strong. But let me tell you this, that no amount of winds or, or waves or storms could ever move Christ Jesus from where he is seated. And that is where you are firmly, firmly anchored because he is completely unshakable. And not only that, but you're also bound to him by the Holy Spirit. And some people might be worried, well, what if, what if we lose that connection? What if we lose that? Is there a way to lose that? There's not. There's no way to lose that. Let me tell you this. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, 1.22, that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee and seal. The Ephesians 1, uh, 13 and 14, he says that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance. Why would God give us a guarantee for something he's just going to take away? Moreover, why would God take it away? You say, well, because I sinned. Wasn't every sin on the cross put to death through Jesus Christ? So how could a sin that Jesus Christ paid for break your connection with God? They were either all paid for or they weren't. That is why we can trust in that anchor. Because we are sealed and guaranteed in him by the Holy Spirit. We enter into this through faith, sealed and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. And remember, when Jesus was on this earth, all kinds of things tried to come at him 
all kinds of temptation. The authors told us this, that he suffered through every single thing that we have been tempted with. All kinds of storms and winds and tempests tried to move and shake Jesus, but he was victorious over every single trial and temptation. And his victory over those things is now your victory over those things. Remember the time that Jesus was in the boat with the disciples. He was back there taking a nap while they were all sailing. And then a storm rises up and the disciples are, are they're scared and worried. They're, we're all going to die. We're going to die. Remember, they, they, they said, wake up. They tried to wake up Jesus. We're going to die. Don't you care? They didn't understand what it meant to be with Jesus. Jesus got up from the back of the boat. He goes and he stands up and he commands the sea and the storm. Remember the words he said, peace, be still. And what happened? Immediately, the waves and the tempest ceased. That's the very same thing he does in our hearts. We have all these waves and things crashing, sins coming down on us, trying to carry us off, trying to carry us off into the world, into darkness and death. But Christ Jesus comes into our hearts, the storms that rage against us, the sin that tries to overcome us, and he looks at it and he says, peace, be still. You are at perfect peace because of Christ Jesus. Firmly tied to the anchor through the guarantee and promise and seal of the Holy Spirit. Firmly placed before the throne of grace by the anchor we have who went behind the veil on our behalf, who went as a forerunner to prepare the way for us so that we could go to the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace in the time of need. Now, I'm not going to ask you today, what is your anchor? What are you tied to? Because let me tell you this, if you are a believer in Christ, your anchor is Jesus. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your anchor is Christ Jesus. Now, you might be trying to tie yourself and play with some other things here and there, but I want to tell you, your anchor is Jesus. The only way you are not anchored to Jesus is if you are not yet a believer. And for those who are not believers, sure, we're trying to, trying to fixate ourselves onto anything that we think can hold us down. We'll try anything to be the anchor of our soul where we can find some peace and rest. But all of us who've come to trust and know the Lord know that nothing in this world can offer you that peace and that rest. Nothing in this world except Jesus Christ. And when you come to Him, He's not just your anchor for a day or a week or till the next time you sin. He is your anchor in every single situation in life. No matter how, how terrible the storm may seem, no matter how dark the night may seem, no matter how horrendous and horrific whatever you're going through seems, you might think, this, this, whatever I'm dealing with today, this is finally the thing that's going to undo me. Nothing can overcome Christ Jesus. Nothing can shake him or take him out of his seat at the right hand of glory, and nothing can sever your tie from him. Paul tells us that in Romans, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Christians, what we need to be reminded of is that's the truth. That is our anchor every day. 
every moment, every time, everything, no matter what we're facing, trial, temptation, anything, you are anchored in Christ Jesus. And the reason you have hope is because that anchor is unshakable. He is untakeable. And he will keep you in the presence of God. So this morning I tell you, when you hear the word of God, don't harden yourself against him. Receive his words as truth. Be assured of the hope that he has brought you. Trust in that. Rest in that, that no matter what happens, you are firm and secure because of Christ Jesus alive in you. Because this great high priest forever. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, we, we cannot thank you enough for this anchor that you have given to us. The hope that we have in Jesus. God, when you made that promise to Abraham, you didn't have to make that promise to him. You didn't have to give him anything, but yet you promised to give him the greatest treasure the world could ever possess, and that is your son, Jesus. And not only that, Lord, you also swore an oath by yourself, by your own name, that you would fulfill it, that nothing could stop you from keeping your promise. And when we hear those words, God, we rejoice in what you have given us. We rejoice. We hear your words of promise. We say yes and amen. The Lord has kept his word, and we see it through the life, the work, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is where we put our hope. That is where we put our faith. Because we know, God, we, there's nothing we can do. And God, if we could mess this up, we would. In fact, we mess it up every day, but there you are, a steady and firm anchor for us. You won't let us go. You won't let us drift. You won't let us go off into darkness and death once we have become alive in you. So God, I pray today, in a world filled with pain and suffering and wars and rumors of wars and, and economy issues and and just all sorts of problems, social issues, God. We have so many things that we that come at us. God, I pray that you would bring to our hearts and minds the remembrance of the full assurance of hope that we have in your son, Jesus. That he is our firm anchor and he will not be moved. And because of him, we cannot be moved either. Lord, also today I want to pray for anyone who's, who's never trusted in your son Jesus, for anyone who's never believed in him in that way. They don't know him or they've never heard. All they have to do is come to him in faith and he will receive them. God, I pray today that you would move in this room if there's anyone in here who's never trusted in the Lord for their salvation, who's never come to know him, who's never repented of their sin. I pray, God, you would move today. So that whoever has been anchored to anything else in this world can freely be anchored to your son, Jesus. God, you're so good to us. We cannot thank you and praise you enough. 
You are the promise maker and the promise keeper. And we celebrate and worship you. We pray this in the name of our Lord, our Savior, and our King Jesus. Amen.